And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. This is The Chroniclers, which is episode 1.5 of Rise of the Conquistadors. I am Jesse Wiest, and thanks for listening. Now, in today's episode, we're actually going to kind of kind of return where we left off, way, way back at the end of episode 1.3, and return to uh, talking about the goings-on of the Chronicles, uh, written by Gomez Cains de Zurara, the Portuguese historian, uh, and Prince Henry's basically... Uh, personal propagandist, uh, whose work The Chronicle of Discovery and Conquest of Guinea is going to greatly enlighten us as to what's going on with what's happening when the Portuguese uh, conquistadors begin to voyage to Africa, Africa, even though if The Chronicle itself is going to contain very little discovery and, frankly, even less conquest. Um, we're also going to dive into the voyages of Caramasto, written by the Venetian trader Alois de Cadamasto, who sailed for Henrique near the end of the prince's life. And his account of Africa, written just eight years after Zurara's is finished, um, is going to show us just how quickly the relationship between Europeans and Africans was transformed from one of adversarial uh, to partnership. And, and I should uh, say the rulers and uh, uh, and elites of these countries. Beyond that, examining Zarara and Catamasto side by side is going to let us contrast the two, and that lets us see how important it is to know as much as we can about our historical authors as possible. Who writes history matters. Now, since we know a good deal about Zarara already, uh, let's meet Alois de Cadamasto, and I think the best way to introduce Cadamasto is to let him introduce himself. And, and this is from chapter one of his voyages. Quote, I, Alois de Cadamasto, was the first of that noble city of Venezia, was moved to sail the ocean sea beyond the strait of Zibaltera, towards the south, in the land of the blacks of lower Ethiopia. On this my journey... I saw many things, anew and worthy of some notice, in order that those shall come after me might be able to understand what my thoughts were in the midst of varied things in strange and new places. For truly both our customs and lands, in comparison with those seen by me, might be called another world. I decided, therefore, that it would be laudable to make us some a record of them. As my memory shall serve me, so shall I set down these matters with my pen. 
And if as the facts require, they should be things not ordinarily reported. Nonetheless, they shall not want absolute truth in every respect. For as I prefer rather to understate rather than to relate anything which is exceeds the truth. Unquote. Now, if that doesn't get you interested in what Katamasto has to say, then I don't know what will. Not a lot of sources from the 15th century actually viewed the world in the same way that Katamasto does, and so we can glean a lot from his accounts. Um, but with that said, his voyages take place in the 1450s, and we've got some ground to cover with Zarara before we get there. Now, of course, we, before we do that, I think I'd better take just a minute or two to do some shameless self-promotion. You can follow along with History of the Atlantic World podcast on Facebook uh, by searching for Atlantic World History. Um, you can also uh, look for us on Twitter at Atlantic1492. And uh, like I said last episode, I finally figured out that the best way to put up maps, I think, um, that correspond with different episodes is probably to make an Instagram account. And so you can do that if you'd want uh, by searching for Atlantic World Podcast. That's all one word. Um, now, one final bit of promotion, if you don't mind, I'd also like to thank those who have contributed to the podcast Patreon page. Um, wow. That's really awesome. I appreciate your support immensely. Um, of course, episodes of the podcast, I... I'm always going to keep them free, um, but I also, of course, will welcome donations. Uh, and if you could donate $1 per month, uh, which would be about one episode per month, that would be really appreciated. Um, anyway, you can find a link to that on uh, SoundCloud if you want, which is where the podcast is hosted, um, or by visiting patreon.com backslash Atlantic World. Um, at any rate, now, I wrote this episode and episode, the one before at 1.4, at basically the same time. Um, so I didn't really have time to wait for a lot of corrections. Um, so those will return for next episode. Uh, but I do want to say I, I, would, I feel like uh, I'm going to try not to do what I just did again. I feel like if I had not split this episode up halfway through, I would have had it a little more organized in retrospect. But at any rate, um, if you notice any mistakes or you think I'm wrong about something, uh, please feel free to say so. Um, and if you want, you can do it at historum.org, where you can uh, find the topic I've created about the hot podcast called History of the Atlantic World. And you can, while you're there, you could also find all sorts of other fun historical topics to uh, spend some time talking about with other history nerds if you want. Um, now, with that said, let's return to Zarara. Now, we left off with his uh, chronicle of the conquest of the dis and uh, discovery of Guinea in the aftermath of um, a slave auction, uh, the first of its kind in Portugal, uh, according to him. In uh, the aftermath, the conquistador named Lancerot was knighted by the Infant uh, for this successful uh, mission, which resulted in the capture of, I think, almost 250 slaves, um, which were sold and divvied up in Portugal. Um, it was without a doubt a great victory from the perspective of Henry, the crown, and other uh, Portuguese um, elites involved in the expeditions to Africa. And while we might be repulsed by the description of families being ripped apart and sold, um, Zarara considered this a success. And uh, so he writes, um, quote, it would be an ugly thing in prosecuting Portuguese history if 
he did not also write the misfortunes of the Portuguese people as well. And in the year 1444, sometime after the return of Lancerot and the sale of the slaves, Zorara tells us that the infant armed another caravel. He gave it to a squire brought up from early youth in his household, one Goncalo de Sintra, and made him captain. He admonished de Sintra that he should go straight to Guinea. And this de Sintra did, um, sort of, bringing his voyage to Cape Branco, quote, like a man envious of obtaining fame and desiring to win for himself advantages above the others who had preceded him. And after that, he told the crew that what he wanted to do was go to the Isle of Arguum, which is near Cape Branco. Branco. And now, others on the expedition disagreed. Um, they said that this wasn't what the infant, they remembered the infant saying. It was going beyond his command and that they should continue onwards to Guinea. But um, Goncalo desisted in protesting uh, his protesting men. According to Zarara, he argued that, quote, the injunctions of lords were not always to be strictly attended to, unquote. And I think that's kind of a common, uh, common attitude amongst a lot of these fidalgos. Uh, uh, once they're out and about in the world, far away from rule, they start uh, wondering, you know, maybe... Maybe I should be the one in real charge. The, the captain's will ruled the day, as it was, though, and, and, and they did stop. Decentra's expedition uh, carried along with it an enslaved Azanagwe boy, and he was to serve as the interpreter. Decentra, though, and whoever else was in charge of watching over the boy, did not do a very good job of this. And the next night, um, he escaped. And he joined, quote, those dwellers on the island to whom he gave information of all he knew about their enemies, unquote. Um, and the Azanagwe villagers, with this information, apparently developed a plan of their own. Um, and they set this into motion the next day, because that's when a man appeared on the shore, shore, and he began to show his desire to board the ship, telling uh, the conquistadors that it was on account of the great longing and regret that he had that his relations and friends who were now in the realm of Portugal uh, having already been captured and that he wished to join them and in fact quote he would be very content to endure a life of slavery in Portugal if only he could have sight of them again unquote now with this speech and mind you I don't actually have any idea how the man communicated with this intra in the conquistadors since the boy had escaped but I assume either another translator was on board or at least one of the other Portuguese conquistadors on Desintra's voyage must have known some Arabic and they could communicate uh, with, with what was going on. Now, we should keep in mind, uh, too, that it is also possible that the man had learned Portuguese from John Fernandez, um, who we'll talk about. At any rate, the man was not being honest with his intentions. And on the second night after his arrival, he too escaped, despite a small guard which had been placed upon him. And he made his way out of the caravel, quote, so softly that he was never perceived, though in truth, Zarara tells us, the conquistadors had pretty well forgotten all about him, unquote. Well, that seems like a really bad run of luck to me, if all that is accurate. Um, either that or Desintra and his men were just all completely completely just plastered drunk, maybe. Um, and, and if that's true, that doesn't look too good for Desintra and his leadership capabilities. Um, though, because of that story, it really makes me wonder a little bit 
and we should keep this in mind, that it is possible uh, I, that Zerara is making that up a little bit just to make Disintra look bad. Now, I don't think that's the case, but it's a possibility to consider um, for reasons that are going to be apparent as we continue the tale, and also uh, because we know Zerara is a shameless propagandist. Now, the men discovered that the Moor had escaped the next day. And realizing that they had been deceived, a number of them on the expedition again beseeched Desintra to turn away from Arguin and to head south to Guinea. You know, like Henry wanted us to do. Quote, for look, said they, how we have been discovered in both islands, whither we have gone, how the youth has escaped from us, how one more by himself has come to befool us. Of a surety, we are not the men to accomplish any great action, unquote. But to this, Goncalo de Sintra responded, Then may I, may I perish in these islands, for I will never depart hence, till I have performed some exploit so signal that never shall one like me, nor yet one more noble, Come here and accomplish a greater deed or perform it better than I. In spite of his men, Goncalo steered the caravel towards the nearby island of Nar. But as all the islands are near to one another, Zerara tells us the Moors were able to move quickly about in their canoes, and that everyone in the islands were at once aware of the Portuguese approach. Desintra, in his desire to honor as well as profit, bade them launch his boat and embarked in it with twelve men, the best of his company. He reached the island a little before midnight. There they walked along it and came upon a creek just after low tide. Now not all of the men knew how to swim, so they decided to wait there to see how far the tide would rise. Now during their stay at the creek's side, they either overslept or miscalculated how tide how high the tide was going to rise, because according to Zerara, they were unable to retrace their steps uh, because the water was so high at high tide. They were forced to spend two or three hours of the day before the water fell enough back so that they were able to kind of regain their bearings and, and figure out what was, what was going on. Now, the Moors, meanwhile, had spotted the party at dawn. But they did not attack for a long time afterwards, quote, hoping that they would come further into the country so that they might seize them more readily, unquote. But as they realized that Desintra and his twelve men did not intend to do this, instead they fell on them altogether, as upon a vanquished party. And as in the fight they were very unequally matched, the enemy was apparently well over 200 in number, and... Uh, and Desintra and his men, just 12, and without hope of succor, they were easily overcome, is what Zerara tells us. There, Goncalo Desintra was slain. His poor captaincy ended, quote, not like a man who had forgotten his courage, but inflicting great injury upon his enemies. And the others there perished seven. They all died fighting, without one of them turning back, unquote. Well, that's good. At least he died fighting like a man. Now, the remaining five who lived and escaped, returned to the caravel, and shortly made sail back to the kingdom of Portugal. Quote, for after such a loss, they had no inducement to do anything else, unquote. Now, after this, Zerara gives his reasons for including the tale of Goncalo de Sintra, and they stand out as basically trying to accomplish two things. Now, the first is really pretty obvious, I think, if you think about it. Zerara is plainly 
telling future would-be conquistadors um, to know, you know, this is what will happen if they aren't loyal to Henry. You know, karma's a bitch, am I right? You know, the second is a little more practical. Zerara also has a bit of advice, um, or I, I guess he has seven pieces of advice, and here, I'm just going to read them to you. Now, the first is that no captain who had a superior and from whose hand he receiveth his charge ought in any way to transgress the mandate of his lord or master. The second thing is upon captured hostages and interpreters from a foreign land, a special guard should ever be placed upon watched over them with great caution. And ill results that lately followed from the neglect of this are evident. The third thing is that when an enemy throweth in his lot with the captain, the latter ought not to trust him, but should rather keep a diligent lookout and hold his coming suspicious until the final victory be won. The fourth is that we should hearken to the counsel of those who are in our company and give us profitable advice. For, saith the Holy Spirit, there is safety in a multitude of counsels. And fifthly, that when our enemies have certain knowledge of our power and intentions, we should mu beware much the invading... We, excuse me, we should beware much of invading their land. For a captain's chief duty, as regarded his enemy, is to conceal from them his force, and the contrary leadeth only to his own destruction and that of his men. Sixthly, that we should take much care not to be discovered on a coast where we would make an inroad. And the seventh conclusion I draw from the above event is that no man who cannot swim should cross rising water in a hostile country. Unquote. Now really, that's all, I guess, pretty good advice. Now the Portuguese continued sending expeditions south into Africa, to Cape Branco, to Arguam, to the fabled Rio de Ouro, or what we would call the Senegal River. And in fact, Three ships went to that river in the same year as Decentra's expedition occurred. The ships voyaged jointly together with orders to, quote, see if they could bring the moors of that part to treat of merchandise, but if they were not able to accomplish aught or to do business with them except in the matter of one old moor, um, who, oh, excuse me, unquote after that. Now, they were unable <laughs> to accomplish aught or do business with any of them except uh, one old moor who of his own free will wished to come and see the infant. Now, Zerara tells us that this man received great rewards according to his quality and then was afterwards sent back to his own country. Now, perhaps more surprising to the Portuguese, I think, would have been that one of the squires who attended this mission did the same thing in reverse, and he stayed in the land of Guinea. Now, we mentioned him last episode. His name is John Fernandez. And he had wished desperately, quote, to see the country and bring the news of it to the infant when he should chance to return, unquote. Expeditions followed quickly after this, um, for in the aftermath of Lancerot's capture of, the, of more than 200 slaves, um, the Portuguese and Henrique were spurred onwards, Masaya, Moor over there. And that's uh, why Nuno Tristan, of whom uh, we already spoke way back in episode 1.3, well, he makes another voyage to Africa. And uh, when he did, he arrived with his caravel uh, near the islands where Lancerot in earlier time had made his booty at, at, at Arguin, uh, and anyway, to see if he could also make a capture. 
Now, he only found um, one old man as well as the expedition before, and that told him where he could find a settlement. And the, but, uh, and the next night after that attack, Nuno Tristram did that, and he netted 21 more unfortunate captives uh, before he returned to Lisbon. Afterwards, the next voyage to Africa was Denis Diaz, um, a noble squire who had been a servant to Henrique's father. He became the first Portuguese Fidalgo to sail beyond Arguin Bay, making his way for the Senegal. Dinas Diaz was given captaincy of an armed caravel, and leaving Portugal with his company, never lowered sail till he had passed the land of the Moors and arrived in the land of the blacks, that is called Guinea. Zurara enlightens us a bit to the growing Portuguese knowledge of Africa, and he acknowledges that in the past, while he had called parts of northwest Africa Guinea, the lands farther south which Dinas Diaz traveled to were very, very far and very different than what uh, most, if not all, of the previous Portuguese explorers had seen. And this really was Guinea. He was serious this time. Um, Arguimbe, sure, that wasn't the Rio de Oro, but, but the Senegal definitely is. Now, and unlike the places before which, um, you know, he had called Guinea before and out of excitement, um, Diaz's expedition did encounter people who, uh, which previous expeditions um, had not uh, had not seen. Uh, Zerara tells us that the ship, as the ship was voyaging along the sea, those on land saw it and marveled much at the sight, for it seemeth they had never seen or heard or speak of the like. Some of them supposed it was a fish, while others thought it to be a phantom. Others again said it might be a bird. And after reasoning thus, four of them were bold enough to get into a small boat made out of one hollow tree trunk, and they came a good way out towards where the caravel was pursuing its course, and those in her could not restrain themselves from appearing on its decks. But when the negroes saw that those in the ship were men, they made haste to flee as best they could, and though the caravel followed after them, the want of a sufficient wind prevented their capture. Now Diaz continued along, and he and his men met with other boats whose crews were alarmed at the novelty of the sight, and moved by fear, sought to flee, but because the Portuguese had a better opportunity than before, Zorara tells us they captured four of them, and these were the first to be taken by Christians in their own land. Zorara tells us, quote, For certain there was no small honor for our prince, whose mighty power was thus sufficient to command people so far from our kingdom, making booty among the neighbors of the land of Egypt. And Dinas Diaz ought to share in this honor, for he was the first who, by his command, captured Moors in that land. Unquote. Now afterwards, Diaz pushed onwards until he arrived at a great cape, to which they gave the name of Cape Verde. Now, I think it's fair enough fair here to question Zarara a little bit. Now, I don't know what peoples the Portuguese are commanding, uh, other than the four which had been captured. Um, but anyway, the Diaz expedition continued, and... It's said that they met with many people, but it is not related in what way they met with them. It is enough, Zarara tells us, that they did not capture any more on this voyage. Unquote. Now, I also think it's probably fair to add here as well that it's more likely that Dennis Diaz was unable to capture any more people, <laughs> not that he and his men were unwilling to attempt to capture more people. Either way, Zarara redirects our attention 
uh, back to the Squire John Fernandez, who had chosen to stay at the Rio de Oro, uh, making Fernandez the very first Portuguese Lancado. Now, previously, uh, he had been captured by Moors in the Mediterranean, and in that time, he had been held captive and had learned a basic knowledge of Arabic, a skill that was undoubtedly very useful to him in his decision to stay in Africa around Arguem. And months after the beginnings of his adventure, three more ships had set out from Portugal, and amongst their charges was to look for John Fernandez. The three caravels took their uh, the three captains, excuse me, took their caravels first to victual at the Madeiras because of the great supplies that were there, and then from that point they went straight for Cape Branco. The first to arrive was captained by Diego Afonso, who then put up a great wooden cross as a signal, and which remained at that spot for many years afterwards. Now Zarara tells us that quote great was the delight of each one of the captains once they also arrived, though in that time. The Moors of the area fled, and thus the conquistadors captured no one, which maybe if they had not erected that giant cross, you know, they would have been more stealthy, just going to point that out. But um, at any rate, the expedition left, and from there sailed to Argoam Island, where they had more luck, attacking a village at dawn and capturing 25 people who were unable to escape from the Fidalgos. Two days later, when John Fernandez appeared and joined the party, rejoicing was had, what with the captives and all the hubbub. Um, they remained there for some time, undoubtedly bolstered by whatever intelligence Fernandez was able to impart, for he had spent the last seven months in Africa. Now, shortly after this, an African noble named Ayude Maimon uh, uh, showed up, and Maimon wished to traffic in goods, apparently, and, and, and he spoke with Antum Goncalves, one, another one of the ca captains, and as a result of this, the Portuguese ended up giving up two of their captives, as well as some other small things which pleased Ayude Maimin, from which he desired from the Portuguese, and in return, Zorara tells us the conquistadors obtained nine negroes and a little dust, uh, uh, excuse me, a little gold dust from this ransom. Now, During this time, the Portuguese also learned of the location of more potential captives. Now, Goncalvaso then spoke to his men and said, quote, Let us return to Cape Branco, for I have heard say that on the side opposite um, the sunset there is a village in which we could find some people of whom we could make booty if we took suddenly and by surprise. Unquote. And the conquistadors did just that. 28 of them landing near the village and hiding until the clearness of the day, at which point the moors began to rise. Perhaps 70 or 80 of them, Zerora tells us. Quote, And without further speech or counsel, they rushed out among them, shouting out their accustomed cries, St. George, Portugal. And at their attack, the moors were so dismayed that most of them at once sought relief in flight, and only seven or eight stood on their defense, of whom there now fell dead at the first charge, three or four. These being dispatched, there was no more toil of fight, and only himself, light of foot, thought he had any remedy of his life. In all, they captured fifty-five, and after this capture agreed to return to the kingdom. Zerara concludes the narrative of this expedition by saying it did not appear to him that there could be a man of such evil condition that he could speak against so manifest a good from which followed such great profits as these slave-taking adventures into Africa. Of this booty, the infant, of course, received his fifth, 
the others were sold and the captain received, quote, great advantage, unquote, from this. Now, the joint expedition of Antum Goncalves, Garcia Homan, and Diego Afonso, uh, that came on the heels of the Lancerot expedition, basically. And this boon, combined with the intelligence brought back to Portugal by the return of John Hernandez, meant that the Fidalgos and men of high family within the kingdom, quote, seeing before their eyes the wealth whose ships brought home, acquired in so short a time, and with such safety, considered how they could get a part of that profit, unquote. One such man was Goncalo Pacheco, a member of the Infant's court who held the position of high treasurer of Queta. Zerara tells us that Pacheco was a man of great wealth, one who always kept ships at sea against the enemies of the kingdom, alluding to him being a corsair in the Mediterranean. He wrote to the Infant asking permission to arm a fine caravel and to allow two other caravels to come with him. This he received, and he made captain of his caravel, Dennis Eanes de Gras. The other caravels were captained by their owners, Alvaro Gill, an assayer of the mint, and a man who Zerara tells us, or describes to us, I should say, merely as, quote, Mafaldo, a dweller in Setuval, unquote. We will see he proves himself to be a very capable conquistador. Um, and I suspect the unwillingness of Zarara to tell us exactly who he is means that he is probably just a very successful conquistador who uh, is wealthy because solely from slave trading. Now, the three captains agreed to head towards Cape Bronco and from there to Arguam. When they first arrived, they reached a village on an island and captured 25 people. Afterwards, the conquistadors set their eyes on another nearby village, agreeing to attack it in the next day. But uh, Mafalda, who was a man well accustomed to this business, for he had been many times in the Morris traffic, Zurara tells us, offered a more profitable advice that they not wait and attack in the night. They did this and found the Moors were already hiding, but the Christians spread out and searched, and one of them, Diego Gill, heard an infant cry and was not slothful in returning and telling his news to the others. Zerara states, The space was but short from where the enemy lay, and they, seeing themselves surrounded, began to run out of their huts, and like men more full of terror than courage, put all their hope into flight. The action was not one of any great danger, and so the booty of that night was 53 Moorish prisoners. These were put to questioning. I say questioning, but I can't obviously say for certain that there was no torture involved in this sort of thing. Um, What I can say is that if the Spanish did use torture, they were probably most skilled in the types of torture which don't break the skin because Catholic law and the Spanish Inquisition forbid bloodshed when performing interrogations. But other types of tortures um, were were perfectly fine. Uh, Waterboarding was pretty common, although the most favorite type of torture of medieval Iberians was to rack someone. And and if I'm not wrong here, um, what racking is, is when someone has their arms cinched and tied tightly behind them by a rope, and then that rope is pulled, uh, they're pulled upwards by that rope until they're hanging um, some feet in the air, at least five or six feet in the air, maybe longer, um, and maybe using a tree branch as a fulcrum or, or, or what have you, a mast of a ship. And then they're quickly 
the rope is quickly lowered, causing the person to drop. And then someone catches the rope, just maybe a foot or two before uh, the victim hits the ground, which causes their shoulders to pop out of joint violently. Um, it's tremendously painful, though if it's um, done correctly, I guess it uh, doesn't break the skin. And, 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 uh, and, and so it was acceptable to uh, Catholic law. Um, at any rate, this intelligence... Um, that the Portuguese are able to uh, keep obtaining. They use again the next night, and at another place, three leagues from where the Portuguese were encamped, uh, they net another 10 captives, and the night after that, 35 more Moors were taken. And only after this, with about 100 slaves in the holds of the three caravels, did the conquistadors perceive that they could win no further profit from this land and so took counsel with each other and decided to follow where Dennis Diaz had gone the year before uh, with only one ship to make his capture. They sailed south, probably just beyond Cape Verde, along the coast of Guinea. Now, the Africans now, though, were more prepared to deal with these foreign pirates than before, and Zerara tells us that uh, when the black men caught sight of them, they ran down to the shore with their shields and azagais as men who sought to make themselves ready for battle. Now, perhaps this frightened the Portuguese back, though according to Zerara, a storm forced them away from the coastline for three days, at which time they found themselves all the way back near to the spot where they had been, or pretty much been originally been capturing moors, um, which is to say somewhere near the Bay of Arguin. Um, and either way, how they arrived there, the conquistadors decided to stay and attempt one more capture in this area. Um, but here, too, the Portuguese discovered that their enemies were now prepared for them. Um, this time, though, they would not be dissuaded by bad weather or, or anything like that. And I personally, though, suspect larger numbers of enemy combatants uh, on the Senegal uh, appeared on the shore than were able to here at Arguem, where Zerara tells us that 50 men appareled for fighting uh, uh, showed up, though with no other arms with lances, and they awaited the Christians as they came in their boats. Um, three men in the front of each with lances and shields, to protect themselves who rode. The men cried out St. George, St. James, and Portugal as they leapt out at their enemies. The Moors at once discharged their arms, Zerara tells us, but none of the conquistadors received any dangerous injury, and as a result, the Portuguese began to strike their enemies very briskly, like men burning with the first wrath of battle. And when some had fallen dead upon the ground, the others began to fly. Four or five of those Moors became utterly weary, and so when our men came up with them, they sought the last remedy for their safety, and they threw themselves on the ground as, though they, to be, as, they, sought, as they besought mercy. And this they obtained. More especially, because if they had been killed, the profit would not have been so great, Zorar tells us. After this, the conquistadors went searching for women and children, which they imagined must be nearby, and by the end of the day had obtained twelve captives. The Portuguese remained in the area too long to escape reprisals, however, and the next day, on another nearby island, some of them were ambushed by Moors who had arranged themselves behind three mounds of sand before they came out stoutly, like those who sought to avenge the captivity of their relations and friends. Sweet pearl mothers, Rara's metaphors are just the worst, aren't they? And I, let them, I was letting them go for a little while, but this, this is just terrible. Jesus, Wow. Somebody please send that guy to 8th grade comp lit or something like that. At any rate, a battle ensued, 
And, and the Christians retreated back towards their boats, and the Moors followed an attack. Once there, a number of the conquistadors escaped safely in the boats. But one of the vessels, the, the largest, was unable to be launched like the others. As a result, quote, some of those men who knew how to swim, seeing their danger so near at hand, threw themselves into the water, in which they saved their lives by swimming. But the others, who did not know that art, were forced to frame their wills to patience in the receiving of a troublous death, defending themselves so long as strength gave them aid. And so there was an end made of seven. Unquote. Zorara goes on to point out in the next chapter that the men who died, uh, just died, might have taken some warnings from the very easily escaped disruption that befell them if only they had listened to his advice, which he had previously stated. And I have to say he's probably right, and I really hate saying that. And I hate saying that specifically because Zorara is a terrible writer, especially when it comes to metaphors. But needless to say, once the men in the remaining boats and those swimming back were recovered, the expedition sailed back to Portugal. Now, by, by now, um, just, you know, we've crossed well into 1445. And the expeditions we've discussed so far were probably the very first Portugal, Portuguese caravels to see the River Senegal, or what they call the River de Ouro. Um, now, if I remember correctly, I think I misattributed this to a previous conquistador who believed that he had reached the Rio de Ouro. But if I did that, I was wrong. And if so, I believe what that conquistador, um, I, I don't remember his name, thought was uh, the Rio de Ouro was probably the Bay of Arguum. And, and he probably thought that was the mouth of the Rio de Ouro. Now, luckily, I've looked at some maps, which has helped me clear some of this up in my head, at any rate. And lucky for you, uh, if you'd like, I've uploaded them onto the new History of the Atlantic World Instagram, uh, Atlantic World Podcast, all one word. So if you need some help with your geography, don't feel bad, because I did. And don't worry, because all you've got to do is follow us there, and you'll be able to check out all sorts of neat maps that correspond to this episode, as well as, as previous ones. Now... After these, uh, the, after these expeditions, I should say, the Portuguese attempted their most ambitious attempt at, at conquest in Africa yet. Um, Fourteen caravels were gathered together, an expedition almost five times the size of the largest expeditions to Africa previous to this. And they were under orders to reach the Senegal River. In charge was none other than the now-knighted Lancerot, who had previously commanded that first uh, expedition, which resulted in the slave auction. And landing, uh, after departing, landing shortly afterwards at Arguum, uh, the company, not counting the men remaining in the caravels, uh, the company that landed there was 228 men-at-arms, and they made plans to take captives. But first, they took up Henrique's banner of the crusade, since those who died under the said banner were absolved from sin and punishment, according to Zerara, the party made their way to an interior village, and there saw a multitude of moors drawn up as to fight, a sight which made the honor-starved Fidalgos very joyful. In contrast, the villagers of the island who had mustered to defend their homes lost first courage and began to fly upon hearing the sounds of the tr Christian trumpets. The Moors cast themselves into the water, swimming across a creek where their women and children had already passed along with their goods. But in this retreat, the Portuguese killed eight and captured four, 
of the conquistadors' casualties, one of the men of, from Lagos was wounded and died later at sea, Zorara tells us. After the confrontation and rout, the Fidalgos apparently stayed in their enemies' habitations, making use of their supplies of water. They later returned to their ships by way of some asses which they stole and rowed uh, back. The Portuguese did not let the African villages of Tiger escape for long, however. Eventually, the Christians chose to cross that creek and took the battle to where their enemies had escaped. In the ensuing battle, seven more conquistadors were basically gutted and killed as they attempted to land on the other side of the shore, and the uh, Africans defended their position with lances. But once the Portuguese gained a foothold, they eventually broke the Moorish line, who, according to Zerara, fought, quote, not so much from enmity as in defense of their women and children, and for the salvation of their own lives, unquote. Sixteen were slain before they turned and were routed, and so being conquered, Zerara tells us, began to fly, and there perished many of them. And in the great heat of the day, the Fidalgos pursued and were able to take fifty-seven, and with these captives, returned to the caravels once more. Afterwards, the Portuguese, led by two Moorish women whom they had made amongst their captives, made their way in the three smallest and lightest caravels to the mainland, and searching there, managed to capture five more. On the next day, Lancerot gathered together all of the principal men of the expedition, and as well as any other who wished to hear what he had to say, and declared victory. Despite having captured far fewer slaves than his first expedition, mind you. you know, with, with that, the prisoners were divided up so that each one had his own rightful share and could go wherever he thought best. Now, with that said, about half of the expedition actually turns back afterwards. According to Zerara, they replied, as their caravels were small and winter was very near, they held it as perilous to remain and proceed any further. Now, the, so only six caravels of full of conquistadors, took up the call issued during the meeting by one captain named Gomez Perez, who issued this challenge to those who remained. Quote, But as for you others, honorable sirs and friends, you know right well the will of the Lord Infant, how much store he setteth on knowing somewhat of the land of the Negroes, and especially of the river Nile. For which reason I am resolved to make my voyage to that land, toiling as much as I can get at it. Lancerot seconded this, stating that his purpose was also his own, that this purpose was also his own, excuse me, and another captain, Alvaro de Freitas, spoke up, and after that the six resolved to go together, and shortly afterwards set out, and, quote, pressed so far south that they passed the land of the Sahara, belonging to those moors which are called Azanagues. Now, I should add, I suppose, that, of course, the Nile River was not going to be reached. They were headed towards the Senegal River. But Alvaro de Freitas and others in the company simply believed that the River Senegal, of course, connected with the Nile River. I should probably also add that the returning caravels, mind you, weren't exactly headed straight home. They actually went to the Canary Islands. Uh, but we'll retur be returning to that theater next episode. And... and um, Lancerot's second expedition came in sight of two palm trees, and the men began to rejoice. They knew um, that was a spot to look for. Dennis Diaz had spotted them on his previous voyage, and so they understood, uh, therefore, that they were at the beginning of the land of Guinea. In vast contrast to the rather inhospitable landscape of the Sahara, the Portuguese remarked, 
How good must be the fruits of this country, for a delicious scent reached them all the way out at sea, such that it seemed to them that they stood in some gracious fruit garden. Black Africans stood at the shore, and though, according to Zerara, both sides seemed eager to meet the other, neither did they abandon the beach and head towards the ships. Now, after testing the salinity of the water and concluding that the river Nile must be nearby, one of the caravels launched a boat with eight men aboard. One of them, named Stefan Afonso, who Zerara tells us will later meet his end on the Grand Canary, espied the door of a hut and said to his companions, I know not how the huts of this land are built, but judging by the fashion of those I have seen before, that should belong to fishing folk who have come to fish in the stream. Afonso thought they should therefore sneak up on the huts to see if any natives were there. Of course, the others agreed, and they put this plan into execution. He went, Afonso did, with five others. When they neared the hut, Afonso and the conquistadors found it defended by a boy, stark naked, with a spear in his hand. And so they seized him at once. And coming a little closer, they lighted also upon his sister, who was about eight years old. So after this, and having searched the hut, they continued uh, to journey some way, um, securing the children, I should say, as well, onto the ship. And during this time, Afonso heard the blows of an axe, or some other iron instrument, and they thought someone might be carpentering upon a piece of timber. And when they saw him, they decided to sneak up on him. Now, once the six conquistadors moved into position, Stefan Afonso crept forward behind the carpenter. And what with the careful guard that he kept in stepping quietly and the intentness with which the guinea labored at his work, he never perceived the approach of his enemy until the latter leapt upon him. And I say leapt, since Stefan Afonso was of small frame and slender while the guinea was of quite a different build. And so Afonso seized him lustily by the hair, Zerara tells us, so that when the guinea raised himself erect, Stefan Afonso remained hanging in the air with his feet off the ground. The carpenter was a brave and powerful man, and he thought it a reproach that he should thus be subjected by so small a thing. But though he struggled very hard, he was never able to free himself, so strongly had his enemy entwined himself in his hair that the efforts of these two men could be compared to nothing else than a rash and fearless hound who had fixed upon the ear of some mighty bull. Holy Gomez, Conde's Aurora, Batman. That is a fucking metaphor. Oh, wow. I'm not going to lie. That really makes up for some of the garbage attempts at metaphors that this guy's done so far. Hey, holy cow. I mean, really... Zorara can come through in the clutch with some timely prose. And, 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 and I know that for a fact that in the pre-modern age, carpenters were some super, super strong dudes in general. They didn't have power drills back then. And I don't know if you've ever used an auger, but let me tell you, doing so will get you man muscles. Uh, I digress for a bit. Um, it, I get a little excited talking about pre-modern carpentry and also about metaphors. Now, returning, um, if I may, to Zerara, uh, who, who t continues, the endangered carpenter could not free himself from Afonso because Afonso's companions came upon them and seized the guinea by the arms and neck in order to bind him. 
and Stefano Fonzo, thinking that he was now into custody and in the hands of the others, let go of his hair. Whereupon the guinea, seeing that his head was free, shook off the others from his arms, flinging them away on either side and began to flee. Zorara tells us that though the Fidalgos attempted to pursue him, the man's agility and knowledge of the undergrowth gave him a great advantage, and so he escaped. But life can be very, very cruel. The carpenter went free and went home with the intention of saving his children and taking his arms, which he had left with them. But all his former toil was nothing in comparison to the great grief which came upon him at the absence of his children, whom he found gone. Missing, of course, from the same fishing hut that Afonso and the others had taken the boy and girl from earlier. The carpenter began searching for them frantically, as there yet remained for him a ray of hope, and he thought that perchance they were hidden somewhere. And he did not find them. He did find Vicente Diaz, one of the captains of the vessels, who had decided to leave his ship and go for a morning walk in the aftermath of the conquistadors, having secured his ch the children. Diaz, thinking that he was only coming out to walk along the shore, had not troubled to bring with him any arms except a boat hook. But the guinea, as soon as he caught sight of him, burning with rage as you might well imagine, made for him, and rushing boldly upon him, gave him a wound in the face with his assegai, which he, whereupon he cut open the entire length of Diaz's face. Diaz in return gave the guinea a wound, though not so fell a one as he had just bestowed. The pair threw their weapons aside. After that, since they were not sufficient for this struggle, and wrestled, each one striving for victory. While this proceeded, another African saw what was happening and came to aid his countrymen. Both escaped, and the Portuguese returned to their caravels. <clears throat> After this encounter, the Portuguese decided to set north from the mouth of the Senegal River and headed up uh, downstream. Unfortunately for them, one of the caravels got separated and lost, and so when they arrived at the spot previously visited by Henrique's agents, only five remained, and for what they were planning, they discovered the alarm had been sounded, as it were. Zerara tells us that there were so many of those guineas on land that by no means could they disembark, either by day or night. One of the remaining captains, Gomez Perez, attempted to therefore trade peacefully, and he placed upon the shore a cake and a mirror and a sheet of paper, upon which he had drawn a cross. Now, Zerara tells us that when the Africans came upon those things, they broke up the cake, they threw it in the way, and with their assegais, they cast them at the mirror till they had broken it into many pieces, and the paper, well, they tore it up, showing that they not cared for any of these things. Gomez Perez did not take this well. That was an expensive mirror, and he would have eaten that cake. Worst of all, he had taken a long time completing that nice drawing, he thought. Since it is so, Perez said to his crossbowmen, shoot at them with your bow so they may at least understand that we are people who can do them hurt. Shortly after issuing that command, Perez realized that perhaps he'd made a mistake as well. Now the Africans began paying them back 
launching their own arrows and azagais in return. Dangerous missile weapons, since the African weapons were all equally poisoned with plants, and the plant is, they use is very venomous, Zorora tells us. Now, as a result of uh, this, um, shall we say, complete breakdown in diplomatic negotiations between different cultures, um, the Portuguese did not dare enter into the river, um, as they had previously planned. <clears throat> and in fact, two more ships left, uh, Gomez Perez, who did bring back a great many sea cow skins uh, that he captured before returning, and that of Lawrence Diaz, who was unable to fall back in with the convoy, um, and and then, then went back to Lagos. Now, unfortunately uh, for Lancerot and the expedition, um, the whole attempt was probably doomed to failure from the start because any surprise in the uh, or any hope of surprise in the area had been lost on account that the governor of Madeira, uh, a man named John Goncalves Zarco, had also been commissioned by Henrique to explore Africa, and his caravel was already down the Senegal River. Um, and with his caravel having arrived before Lancerot's expedition, um, that is the reason why Lancerot and the others found the riverbanks basically crawling with alerted and not very happy African soldiers upon their arrival. And if I may, for a moment, break away from Zarara's account of the Lancerot's expedition, I think I might as well catch us up with what Zarko has been up to. And also because I, I, mean, I just have fun saying Zarko. Um... Now, I'm not sure whether or not Zarco and Lancerot knew of each other's expeditions, but they were both sanctioned by Henrique. So, if you were going to place blame on the mix-up on somebody, it really needs to be laying at the feet of Henrique, unless maybe you're of the opinion it should be laying at his, the feet of his brother, the king. Anyway, but no matter how you would want to divvy up the responsibility for having these two expeditions stumbling into one another, Zorara tells us plainly that Zarco armed a caravel under the command of his nephew, Alvaro Fernandez, and ordered him not to hinder himself in the lands of the Moors, but to take his way straight to the lands... Well, I apologize, I seem to have lost my place, but uh, Zarco... Uh, ordered his nephew, Alvaro Fernandez, to make his way straight towards the land of the Negroes. Now, and this he did, and upon reaching Cape Verde and the river Senegal, he began snooping around. And eventually, near the Cape, they were approached by two canoes, which each carried five men. Now, one of these canoes disembarked onto the caravel, where Alvaro Fernandez had them entertained as hospitably as he was able, uh, and gave or with orders to provide them to with food and drink. And after all of this, uh, they had departed and gave signs of contentment, according to Zorara. But also, according to Zorara, they must have reported back to their friends that they could easily capture the Portuguese. And with this and with this design, they put off in six boats with 35 or 40 of their company, prepared like men who meant to fight. But they would not approach any closer to the caravel, and a standoff developed. Alvaro Fernandez ordered the boat to be lowered on the opposite side of the Africans, hoping they would not see him lower it, and he ordered eight men into it with the orders that they might ambush the Africans if and when they did get closer. Now, this plan did work, and when Fernandez perceived that this boat was in the position for him to be able to reach it before the canoe it attacked uh, could receive help from the others, he ordered, um, he issued his own boat to issue forth. Zerara tells us that the Portuguese overtook the enemy by means of their strong rowing, 
But the Africans leapt into the water, while the other boats fled to the land, and those Africans who had been in the canoe dived like cormorants, so that the Portuguese only managed to capture one of them, and not without difficulty. Zurara tells us this unfortunate man was so valiant that two men, mighty as they were, could not drag him into the boat until they, caught, until they took a boat hook and caught him with it above one eye, and the pain of this made him abate his courage and allow himself to be put into the boat. Afterwards, Fernandez and his men continued to terrorize the river by rowing along the boat and attempting to ambush more folks and capture more slaves until the area was chock full of men from Guinea come to defend the homeland with their poison arrows. And that is precisely the situation into which Lancerot's expedition sailed into when they arrived in the region. Though, as Fernandez's caravel was by this time much farther upstream than Lancerot and the others dared to go, they did not encounter each other. Now, at any rate, back to Lancerot, we've got three remaining caravels, that of Lancerot, that of Alvaro de Freitas, and that of Vicente Diaz, the same Vicente Diaz who was having a big problem with his face at the moment as the result of having been wounded by a very, very, very angry carpenter. Now, in fact, Diaz, Zorar tells us, is really only there because he is so wounded that he is unable to make the return trip with uh, quickly he needs to rest. Now, Lancerot and Alvaro de Freitas, though, still felt the need to obtain more booty. Now, realizing they probably weren't going to get very far uh, in doing so at the River Senegal, it was simply too well-peopled and well-defended, uh, what were they going to do? Well, it seemed to them and the remaining conquistadors that the best course of action would be to return to the area of Arguum, the far less peopled area of the African North Atlantic, which contained a few small islands, a number of Azanagwe fishing villages, and occasional uh, Saharan trade caravans. Now, once they arrived back, they made their way towards Tyder, and where they embarked from the ships, and while on land, they spotted a track of men who had passed uh, that way, and also, to them, the track seemed fresh, and they discovered also the footprints of women and children. So they followed these tracks, and after a very great distance, finally spotted the moors. Zorara tells us that the fate of these poor fisher folk, once the conquistadors leapt into battle against them, was, quote, The Moors endeavored to offer a defense, and in the brief space learnt the error of their sect. And for without any pity our men killed them very speedily, insomuch there remained no more than twelve, whom they took back as prisoners. Unquote. The conquistadors were particularly pleased with this, since although the sum of captives was smaller, the number of shares was far fewer likewise. Having obtained that booty, Zorara tells us that the expedition then made their way to another island uh, in Arguam called Serena, and there, when the sky was covered by shades of night, they launched their boats and embarked. Lancerot ordered the boats to be make their way along the water, and although at first they spotted nothing, Lancerot heard an ass bray. Meseemeth, he said to the others, I hear the bray of an ass, as though some pleasure were in store for us, for perchance it is God's will that we should not depart hence without booty. Once the Fidalgos spotted their human prey, Zorara tells us that Lancerot and the other captains were unable to control the desires of their men that urged them to cry out, St. James, Portugal, St. George. The Azanagues in anguish began to fly, though not all together, nor by one road, but each by himself, 
quite leaving behind their women and children without any hope of remedy. True, it is that some that were there, who had the courage to show some defense, but these were very quickly dispatched from life. And finally, all of the people that were taken, killed, or all of the people there were taken, killed, or escaped. The booty was 57 additional captured Moors. Finally then, did the last three caravels make an end of that voyage and return themselves back to the kingdom. And so ended the second expedition of Lancerot. Now, as I said, some of those ships had gotten separated making uh, and made up made trips to the Canary Islands, um, but uh, we'll also be leaving those accounts. So we're going to get back to that account actually a little bit um, next episode when we return our attention to the Canary Islands, um, where the Portuguese conquistadors were going to run headlong not only against the Guanche people, but against uh, the Spanish as well. Now, the Portuguese will never again attempt such an ambitious uh, uh, try in sub-Saharan Africa, but they did continue to send smaller voyages. Dennis Diaz made another one himself, um, and in fact, uh, you know, after you know his first voyage, he'd given name to Cape Verde, um, and Diaz um, uh, made the trip. Now, Zerara tells us that Diaz, from his experience, from having previously gone to the place, knew that they would easily find moors more than sufficient to load the ships. But he also tells us that Diaz didn't really know that they weren't going to be so easy to capture. Um, and Zerar tells us that they are brave men, full of artifices in their defense. Still, Diaz and his company made their way beyond Arguum. And they sailed south from that point to Cape Verde. Now in Guinea, they disembarked, and after searching the beach for some time, discovered, discovered tracks, which led them to a group whom Zorara identifies as Moors. After a chase, Dennis Diaz and his company ended up capturing nine of these poor people, though of this group they only managed to return six to the ship. Zorara tells us actually how the three escaped. Quote, Since women are usually stubborn, one woman of that company began to refuse to walk. Throwing herself on the ground and letting herself be dragged by the hair and the legs, having no pity on herself, and over great stubbornness, compelled our men to leave her there bound, intending to return for her another day. And as they were going along in this contention, the others began to disperse, some fleeing to one side and some to another, and two of them got away, not counting the Morris whom they had already left. Now, besides this just being a little funny as well as showing the commonplace misogyny that exists in the, in the early modern world. The, the woman's refusal to move is an act of what historians would call passive resistance. And as we can see from this example, it can actually be a very effective means of, of resisting enslavement. Um, at any rate, after securing the remaining six prisoners, Dennis Diaz and the other conquistadors discovered a nearby village. Twenty men disembarked from the caravel and scouted that area, and of these, fourteen continued to press onwards after realizing that their enemy um, was in greater number than they were. Uh, the other six returned to the ships to get reinforcements. Now, during that time, the remaining fourteen conquistadors followed the tracks where they discovered, um, not long afterwards, an ambuscade an ambuscade which began to disclose itself, says Zerara. About 40 Moors issued forth against the Portuguese very eagerly, who 
like men who felt they had victory in their grasp, as well as well as by reason of their numbers, which were greater. But although the Moors came on thus boldly, the Christians did not turn their backs to them, but on the contrary made ready their weapons. And after this there began a fierce combat between them, in which lances and arrows were not without employment. The Moors were without armor, and the Christians employed all their efforts in wounding and slaying them, and eventually the Moors began to feel themselves overmatched, and they withdrew. The Moors did not draw off so far that the combat between the two sides continued, though, any less fierce. And that was when the second ambuscade sallied forth, with at least 25 reinforcements, arrived to bolster their African allies. And the loud cries did much to revive the courage of their companions, and those Moors of the first combat, though they had previously shown signs of being vanquished, turned again very boldly to renew the struggle, which was a very fierce between them. The Portuguese armor was again effective, and again the conquistadors dealt out a number of mortal blows. Reinforcements were also coming from the caravels, and though they were too far to offer aid, the number of casualties and the prospect of facing even more armored warriors caused the Africans to give flight, unable to collect their dead. However, Zorara also tells us that afterwards the Portuguese too returned to their ships to give rest and cure to their weary and wounded. Zorara describes a great victory for the Portuguese, but I'm not sure if the reality was quite that. He doesn't tell us exactly how num the number of, for whatever reason he here, does not give us the number of wounded. But they could have been pretty substantial after the fight, and one of the company, a page named Martin Pereira, had toiled hard during the battle, and his shield, though, they do, he does say, was as full as the enemy's weapons as though it were the back of a porcupine when he lifteth his quills. Now, at any rate, Dinas Diaz and the other captains did not pursue the Africans. Now, and so whether they had received enough injuries to prevent further attempts, or perhaps uh, realizing that larger battles were to lay ahead if they did continue onwards, they stopped, and instead they made their way back to the Kingdom of Portugal. Now, up to this point in 1446, um, Zorara tells us that 51 caravels had voyaged to Africa under the auspices of Henrique, and had, they had passed beyond Cape Bojador by 600 leagues, though also at that time the navigational charts were only accurate up to 450 leagues. And the successful Portuguese navigation beyond that point of the remaining 150 leagues was possible by pilots with experience from previous voyages. But experience alone could not dictate success when it came to Portuguese attempts at subduing West Africa. Nuno Tristam uh, made another voyage in 1446, this time seeking to go far beyond his previous voyages to Africa. Tristam had heard the reports of what had been accomplished thus far by the Portuguese under Henrique's direction, and after making, obtaining permission to ma uh, make another attempt, he straightway made ready a caravel, and having it armed, he began his voyage, and pursued his course toward the land of the Negroes. And passing by Cape Verde, he went sixty leagues further, and came unto a river, in which seemed to him there ought to be some inhabited places." Now, Tristram's caravel had two boats, and he launched both of them. Twenty-two men proceeded up the river, making their way straight towards some dwellings on the right side of the riverbank. Now, when they went on shore, however, as many as seventy or eighty guineas with bows in their hands appeared on the other side of the river. And they weren't stuck there, either. They began operating boats of their own, one of which, 
crossed to the other side, and once they did, began to shoot arrows at the Portuguese men in their boats. Now, the other boats full of African warriors had gotten into their canoes as well, and though they remained on the water, they too discharged, quote, that accursed ammunition of theirs, all full of poison, up to the bodies of the conquistadors. And they held in pursuit of these two boats, until finally the much beleaguered Portuguese reached the caravel which was lying outside the river in the open sea. Already, four of the 22 were slain by the time they had reached the caravel, and even then the Portuguese could not escape, for the multitude of arrows with which they were attacked made it impossible for them to lift their anchors. Two more men were wounded by arrows before this was accomplished. Now, of the original 22 in the boats, 19 of them died, and 21 died in all after the two uh, men who had been raising the anchors also perished. Zerara tells us that this was because the Africans were using poison so artfully composed that a slight wound, if it only let blood, brought men to their last end. And there died that noble knight Nuno Tristam, who had been himself amongst the crew of the boats. Now, <clears throat> the remaining crew, in fact, were not more than five in number, none of whom were adults, except perhaps someone described by Zerara as, quote, a sailor lad, very little acquainted with the art of navigating, unquote. I don't know his age, but I guess he served as captain at this time. His crew, consisting of a boy of the Infant's household named Arius Tinoco, who went as pursuer, a guinea boy who had been captured with the first prisoners taken in that land, and two other boys, both quite young, who were living with some of those esquires who had died there. And undoubtedly, the trip home was harrowing. The sailor lad's knowledge was so scant that he knew not how to direct the course of the ship, or actually to work at anything of that kind at all, in such a way as to be serviceable. And so... They very slowly and improbably made their way back towards the direction which they believed the kingdom of Portugal lay. And they began dealing with the wounded. And the wounded were quickly becoming the deceased. So these children were obliged to throw them into the sea as they died, and it must have been a life-altering experience. Not one that I think any of us would wish on a child, that's for sure. Zorora spares us, however... He writes, quote, not of the feelings that would be theirs when they cast those multitude of waters, burying their flesh in the bellies of fish, unquote. Incredibly, the unlikely crew of young men sighted a ship in the distance after having gone two months without sight of land. As it approached, they became fearful, thinking it might belong to the Moors, but were relieved, however, to find that it was captained by a Christian corsair named Pero Falcom who did not kidnap them, even, even told them they were actually off the coast of Portugal and just needed to turn east. Now, afterwards, they were able to arrive at Lagos and there told the infant of the tragic misfortune uh, of their voyage and laid before him the multitude of arrows by which their companions had died. But undaunted by news of this tragedy 
and the lack of success of his first voyage, John Concalvez Zarco, the aforementioned captain of Madeira, made ready once more to dispatch that same Alvaro Fernandez, his nephew, with the caravel well-armed, and charged him to make his way still further onward, and to toil for some booty by which its novelty and greatness might give testimony to the good will he had to serve the lord who brought him up. This Alvaro Fernandez did, going straight to Cape Verde, where in the past year they had captured two guineas. From that point, Fernandez passed onwards to the south, to a place known as the Cape of Masts, though since it's not called that now, I don't know exactly where they're talking about. Now, regardless, Fernandez decided to put some men ashore for the purpose of seeing that land, and once these seven had landed, they discovered footprints, which they followed until they reached a well and found some goats there. But that actually made the Portuguese a little fearful because they thought the goats were probably left behind at the well because the Africans had perceived they were being followed, and so they went no further. They dared not pursue this course without the advantage of stealth. Now, they did, however, dare to continue traveling alongside the beach, and a few days later of doing this, they came upon a village, whose inhabitants issued forth like men who showed they had a will to defend their houses. And among them came one armed with a good buckler and, 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 and an azagai in hand. Alvaro Fernandez saw him, and judging him to be the leader of the band, went stoutly at him and gave him such a wound with his lance that he fell down dead. Then Fernandez took from him his shield and azagai. Seeing this, the others paused from their aggressive stance, but the Europeans also decided that perhaps discretion was the better part of valor and withdrew afterwards to their ship. Neither side wanted a battle, uh, it seemed. Um, Alvaro Fernandez and his men were not quite done pillaging the countryside. Zorara lives little doubt in what Fernandez and his men desired in Guinea on the next day when they espied some of the wives of those guineas and captured one of them, who was about 30, they tell us, with a son of hers who would be about two, and also a young girl of 14 years who had, quote, well-formed limbs and also a favorable presence, unquote. It seems pretty obvious, I guess, to me what Zoraris is telling us. Uh, that uh, Fernandez and his men were going to rape that 14-year-old girl, and probably also her mother, they ended up capturing another woman as well before bringing these four prisoners to the caravel and returned once more to the river to try and make some good booty. Now, however, the Fidalgos found an active defense, and there came upon them four or five boats of guineas prepared like men who would defend their land. And the Portuguese men in the boat were not desirous to try a combat with them, seeing the great advantage their enemies had, and especially because they feared the great peril that lay in the poison with which they shot. And so they began to retreat to their ship. Before they did, one of those boats of guineas made a shot, and it just so happened to hit Alvaro Fernandez right in the leg with a poison arrow. Now, Fernandez, though, seems to have had some knowledge of poisons, because perhaps maybe from a previously captured African, or I don't know, maybe uh, some other way of not getting knowledge of the poison. I, I don't know. Prob probably. Um, anyway, he withdrew the arrow from his wound, which, and then he had washed with urine and olive oil and anointed with theriac herb, and this combination seems to have worked. 
Um, Fernandez did become so ill that Zerari says his health was in a very troublous case, and during certain days, he was in the very act of passing away from life, but he did recover. This did take time, and his crew, in the meanwhile, wasn't really in the mood for further confrontation, and so they sailed away. Now, by this time, uh, the fame of these African voyages had begun to spread through Europe, and Zerara tells us that was how a Danish knight named Valarte discovered news of these voyages at the king of the at the court of the king of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And I'll be perfectly honest here; I have no idea if a single king ruled those three countries in 1446 or not or whether Zerara is as ignorant of Northern Europe as I am. But that's not really besides the point. Now, Velarte got permission to make a voyage, and he traveled to Africa in a caravel, though Henrique did place another Portuguese knight on board named Ferdinand Afonso, just to make sure everything was on the up and up. You know, Velarte's expedition is important for two reasons. Now, first, because he himself carried ashore with a few men in a boat after seeing... uh, Excuse me. He, he himself was carried ashore with a few men, and after seeing a large group of Africans on shore, uh, found themselves captured, along with, found himself captured with three others. Um, and they lived as captives in Africa in a castle very far inland, Zora tells us. And they probably should have been more careful. Now, the other reason, I guess, why Velarte's expedition is pretty neat is that it's essentially the last of the chronicles recorded by Zorara. Now, Zorara has more chronicles, I should say. We skipped over his rather uh, scanty in comparison records regarding the Canarian expeditions of the Portuguese, but that's on purpose. Uh, Our next episode, the Canarian Wars, will fill in that gap. But Zorara has also left stories untold. He evidently intended on writing a third chronicle of discovery and conquest of Guinea, but he died before that happened, and boy, I sure do hope that doesn't happen to me. At any rate, the last voyages for which his records appear to have taken place in 1448. Now, for some time after that, um, we don't, as far as I'm aware, have record in English anyway, uh, of further voyages by the Portuguese into Africa. Um, the the records in Lisbon have, have suffered fire a couple of fires over the years. Um, and although certainly there must have been voyages between 1448 and 1455 and 56, which is when Catamasto takes his voyage into the African Atlantic, um, uh, we don't know a whole lot about it. Now, the historian who compiled the voyages of Catamasto and other um, documents on Western Africa, his name is G.R. Crone, and he provides an excellent introduction and, uh, to the situation at hand. Uh, whereupon he states the following, quote, It appears fair to say that by 1448, the Portuguese were approaching Sierra Leone and had begun the detailed examination of the coastline between Cape Verde and the latter landmark. It is important to realize this so that the voyages of the next decade can be appreciated in their true light. That is, the completion of the work of their predecessors and as commercial ventures rather than as voyages of discovery. Now, there seems to have been an undoubted pause in the progress of Portuguese exploration during this period, um, during this decade, excuse me, as there is no evidence of a definitive advance until the voyage of a man named Pedro de Sintra beyond Sierra Leone, which uh, we I think happened in 1462. Now, as for Catamosto, he will take two voyages. 
Besides being one of the first Europeans to have stated the Cape Verde Islands, he makes no new discoveries, and the value of his work lies elsewhere. To quote G.R. Crone again, Cadamasto, quote, reflects the spirit of open-minded inquiry, characteristic of the new age. The fabulous and the sensational have no place in his story, in the story he has to tell. His outlook was singularly comprehensive, and he was evidently at pains to collect and coordinate information from many sources. Now, that his work remained for a considerable period one of the primary authorities on Western Africa is a testimony to its thoroughness. And in short, I would say, unquote, excuse me, and in short, Alois de la Costa was an enlightened man. And a much earlier uh, enlightened figure than, than most other figures of the Enlightenment. Because he was born sometime around 1432. Uh, he, he apparently became a citizen of substanding in Venice at a young age. Uh, Crone says that he acquitted himself creditably at the Siege of Verona by the Milanese. And in 1440, uh, and three years later, uh, no, excuse me, in 1440, three years later after that, he was appointed an administrator of the war and mercantile marine. Five years, five years later, by 1445, he had began trading in overseas voyages, first in the Mediterranean uh, with Italian business partners, and then out into the North Atlantic. In 1452, he sailed alongside ships from Flanders. Now, the next year, Catamasta returned to Venice and found his family in need. His father had been involved in a complicated civil suit, which resulted ultimately in two hefty fines and his banishment from the territories of Venice. Well, well, his father must have really fucked up. Now, at any rate, there are the cir- these are the circumstances under which Catamasta goes to Portugal, uh, where he obtained employment and opportunities for trade um, under Henrique uh, by voyaging to Africa in 1454, uh, just at the age of 22 years old. Now, Catamasto uh, sailed from Cape St. Vincent on board a caravel belonging to a man named Vicente Diaz on March 22, 1455. And from there he made his way to Portugal, where he met with another Venetian, Patrizio de Conti, who was the Venetian consul to the Kingdom of Portugal, and who was known apparently for his extensive knowledge of geography. Now, de Conti was in the employ of the Lord Infante Henrique, Henrique, and he told Catamasto that great wealth could be obtained by working for the prince. So, de Conte introduced Catamasto to Antum Goncalves after that, who you might remember as being one of Henrique's fidalgos from a previous voyage, and Goncalves showed Catamasto samples of sugar from the island of Madeira, as well as other products of the island, including dragon's blood, which is a resin uh, used by Europeans at the time for medicine. Um, now, Goncalves told Catamasto that his lord had peopled newly discovered islands, which had previously been uninhabited. And he also stated to Catamasto that these were nothing in comparison to other greater achievements made by Henrique and the conquistadors who had navigated and sailed seas which had never before been sailed and discovered the lands of many strange races where marvels abounded. Goncalves even claimed that those who had been in these parts of the world wrought great grain amongst these new peoples, turning one saldo into six or ten. Now, Catamasto marveled greatly at the tales he heard from Goncalves, and apparently aroused in him a growing desire to go thither. 
Um, and so, he asked what conditions Henrique placed upon those who wished to travel to these lands. Goncalves told the Venetian that he might do so under one of two conditions. The first, that Catamasto might himself fit out a caravel at his own expense and load her with merchandise. On his return, he would be obligated to pay Henrique a law, by law and custom, a quarter of all he brought back, keeping the remainder for himself. Or, alternatively, Henrique would, at his own expense, equip a caravel for whomsoever wished to go if he provided the cargo. Then, on his return, all that had been brought back from those parts would be halved. If nothing were brought back, then Henrique would accrue the charges. Now, Goncalves further added that it was impossible for anyone to return without great gain, and further, that since Enrique knew that the Venetians were more skilled in the affairs of finding spices or valuable products than those of other nations, he would gladly, gladly receive Catamasto and show him much favor. Now, this was more than enough incentive for Catamasto to at least meet Henry, and when the infant confirmed basically everything Goncalves had told him, and thus uh, he thus made up his mind to take the trip. Now, giving the reasons that he was young, well-fitted to sustain all hardships, desirous of seeing the world and things never been seen before by his nation, and also hoping to draw honor and profit. Now, the decision apparently greatly pleased the Lord Infante, who entertained Catamasto suitably, and after many days, the caravel was fitted out. Um, now, the, the, now, and they set sail uh, for the Isle of Madeira on the 22nd of March in 1455. Now, Catamasto first arrived at Porto Sancto, the small sister island to Madeira, and tells us it was governed by Bartholomeo Palastareo, <laughs> Ah, that is definitely wrong. A liege of Henrique, and also that the island produces corn, barley, abounds in cattle, wild pigs, and innumerable rabbits, which had been imported by the colonists. He also tells us how dragon's blood was collected. Quote, the tree is agashed at the foot. The following year, at a certain time, these agashes exude the gum, which is a boiled, a clarified, and a made into the gum. Oh, excuse me, into the blood. The island also produced excellent honey and wax. Large fishing grounds surrounded the island, which had no harbor but a good anchorage, sheltered by all winds, um, save those from the east-southeast and south-southeast. From these winds, Catamasto says, there is little security, but despite this, the anchorage is good. And see, that's the sort of exquisite detail that Catamasto provides, which Zerara and most writers at the time don't. Uh, he simply has different goals. Um, Zerar does. Zerar is promoting Henrique's goals, which were more, which were different than just to just strictly provide factual information. And excuse me, I, I guess there's uh, some. If you're hearing some background uh, noise, the uh, the landscaping is going on outside. But I don't have a lot of time to finish this. So I'm going to keep going. Um, Catamasto, I guess I have all the time in the world, but I'm going to finish this this week. Catamasco likewise describes Madeira, a word which means the Isle of Timber in Portuguese. In fact, Catamasto reports that, quote, not a foot of ground was not entirely covered with great trees when the colonists had first arrived, but they found it was therefore necessary at first to set fire to them. And for a long while this fire swept fiercely over the island, 
So great was the first conflagration that Jaugan called the Zarko, who was in charge of the colonization, was a forced, with all the men, a women, and a children, to flee its a fury, and take refuge in the sea, where they remained up to their necks in the water, and without the food or drink, for two days and two nights or thereabouts, to escape at the destruction. Unquote. Now, oops. I just want to say that these colonists probably exaggerated that story a bit to Katamasto, but still, yeah. What a bunch of dumbasses. At any rate, Katamasto tells us there are four principal settlements at the time on Madeira. Um, Machico, Santa Cruz, Funchal, and Camaro de Lobos, though other habitations existed, such that no fewer than 800 men lived on the island, which was in the circumference of about 140 miles. In sum, he stated it was a most fruitful and a well-stocked land, as a mountainous as a Sicily, yet a very fertile. Every year they harvest a seven thousand bushels of corn, and sometimes more, sometimes less. The soil at first yielded the return of a sixty and a seventy for one, but at the moment this has declined to a thirty or a forty to one, because the land is a daily being exhausted. Since the land was so well watered, the Infante had many sugar canes planted to his great profit. They have produced sugar to the amount of 1,200 gallons, and in time they will produce many more, for this island by its warm and temperate air is most suitable for the cultivation. Many pure confections of the highest standard are made from this sugar. Unquote. Now, Katamasto left the island of Madeira and continued onwards to the Canary Islands. He stopped there at Gomera and Ferro. His descriptions of the Canaries are some of the oldest, besides, the records, besides those recorded by the monks of Bethancourt's expedition, of course, and those of Zarara. He tells us that of the ten islands, three were deserted and seven were inhabited and that these produced great quantities of goat skins, large and of good quality, some tallow and good cheese, but Katamasta didn't stay in the Canaries long. He was anxious to return on his journey, though perhaps his anxiety was more as a result that of the four islands which were ruled by Christians, the Christian in charge, one Diago de Herrera, was a subject of the King of Castile, not the King of Portugal, and he, I'm sure, might not necessarily have been too keen on Katamasto and the Portuguese hanging around. Now, at any rate, from the Canaries, he then sailed to Cape Blanco. And he doesn't state specifically that he stopped at Arguum along the way, but Katamasto does insert a description of the island and its trade with the interior. The Portuguese had built a fortified base sometime after 1445 at Arguum, and merchants now traded there under the license of Dom Henrique, who had been granted a monopoly on the African trade by his brother the king. Now, Katamasto provides an early and fairly comprehensive account of how the trade operated in the area. It is a desert the Berbers call a Sahara. It is a very great desert, which takes well-mounted men, fifty or sixty days to cross. On all these coasts, there are very large fisheries of a various and the most excellent large fish. There is a little water and there are many shoals. Strong currents on the sea, on account of one which navigates only by day, have resulted in the two ships 
already having been wrecked upon the banks. Now, the Mohammedans, Karamaster reports, have a many camels on which they carry brass and silver from Barbary to the land of the blacks. Thence they carry away the gold and the pepper which they bring hither. And that we should know that the Lord Infante of Portugal has at least this land of arguing to our Christians, so that no one can enter the bay to trade with the Arabs, save those who hold the license. These have dwellings on the island, and factories where they buy and sell with said Arabs, who come to the coast to trade for merchandise of various kinds, such as woolen cloths, cotton, the silver, cloaks, carpets, similar articles, and above all the corn, because they are always short of the food in the desert. They give in exchange slaves, whom the Arabs bring from the lands of the blacks and also the gold. The Lord Infante has caused a castle to be built on the island to protect this trade forever. And for this reason, the Portuguese caravels are coming and going all of the year to the island. The Arabs also have many Berber horses, which are the trade and they take it to the land of the blacks exchanging them with the rulers for the slaves. Ten or fifteen slaves are given for one of these horses. The Arabs likewise take articles of the Moorish silk. They make it in Granada and the Tunis of Barbary, silver and the other goods, and they obtain in exchange any number of these slaves and some gold. The slaves are taken to Waden, which is about a six a days inland by the camel. These places are not walled, but frequented by Arabs, and it is a market where the caravans arrive from Timbuktu and from other places in the land of the blacks, on the way to the nearer Barbary. The Portuguese carry away from Argum, as a result of this, maybe a 1,000 slaves every year. Now, Caramasto also states in comparison to earlier years, I apologize for this accent, but I'm going to keep doing it, where a violence and barbarism uh, ruled the day. In comparison nowadays, Caramasto says that Portuguese caravels would come in the night uh, and descend upon the fishing villages uh, to kidnap uh, the people. Uh, but at this time, well, that used to happen, Henrique did not permit further hurt. Uh, to be done to any. And and that lets us know something that's, I think, important. The Portuguese found far greater wealth within Africa by trade than by war, even at Arguin. Now, Catabasto gives us special insight into how gold and salt were traded within the Sahara. He tells us that six days' journey inland beyond Waden, there's a place called Taghaza, where a great quantity of rock salt is mined, and every year large caravans of camels belonging to the Arabs and the Azanage carry it to Timbuktu. Thence they go to Mali, the empire of the blacks, where so rapidly it is sold, within eight days of their arrival it is all disposed of, and then with the gold they return to their homes. Now, from Cape Blanco, Catamanco voyaged south to the mouth of the Senegal. Catamasto, he noted the stark contrast between what lay north and what lay south of the Senegal, something that amazed many of the early Portuguese uh, and other European mariners. Quote, 
a very marvelous thing that is beyond the river. All men are very black, a big and a tall. Their bodies are well formed, and the whole country a green, full of a trees and a fertile. While the men on this side of the desert, they are a brownish, small, lean, ill-nourished, and small of stature. The country is sterile and arid. In fact, Cadamaster spent some, quite some time describing the Senegal region and people, though we got into most of that last episode. And, but with that said, he didn't stop there for long either. Instead, he continued onwards another 80 miles, sailing to the country uh, ruled by uh, an elected sovereign named Budamel. Um, now, Cadamaster sometimes calls uh, the country also Budamel, and I am going to as well, as I quote from him here, uh, and, also, but I, and I'm not sure if it had a different name or not. Um, and I'm also not sure if Budamel is a t- title, uh, 100%, or, or a name. At any rate, um, he was the elected sovereign of the country, and there, Katamasto made his caravel fast in order to do business. Now, he had with him some Spanish horses, which were in great demand in the country, not to mention many articles, such as woolen cloth, Morris silk and other goods, and so he had made up his mind to try his fortune with this lord. Cadamasto caused his interpreter to announce his arrival with horses and goods. The lord of the country, being informed of this, took his own horse and rode down to the seashore, accompanied by fifteen more horsemen and a hundred and fifty footmen. Upon his arrival, Budamel offered to Cadamasto to come ashore that he would be treated with honor and esteem. As Caramasto states, to have having heard of his reputation, he disembarked and was entertained to a great feast and gave the king his horses. Afterwards, Caramasto traveled inland as Budomel desired, remaining 25 miles from shore for some days and in return for the goods which Caramasto was given, which he says had originally cost him about 300 ducats, he was promised 100 slaves. Budomel gave Katamasto a handsome young negress as well, 12 years of age, for the service of his chamber, which Katamasto accepted, taking her back to the ship, something that uh, I think to me and many of us modern readers is kind of disgusting. At any rate, Katamasto accompanied Budomel into the interior after being provided with horses. Once they arrived at their destination, Katamasta was placed into the charge of Budomel's nephew, Bisboror, lord of the village at which they had arrived. He was taken into Bisboror's home and remained there four weeks. Throughout the month of November, and during that time, he stated that he frequently visited with Budomel and saw much of the manner of life in these lands. He reported that similarly to the rulers at the mouth of the Senegal, Budamel was not lord by virtue of treasure or money, but on account of ceremonies and the following of people. Still, he also thought Budamel and other African lords received more obedience than European lords. At least 200 attendants constantly followed him. The area was always coming and going, says Katamasto. And in addition to no lack of people, in addition to the no lack of people, they were coming from very diverse places. He also had nine wives, each of whom had five or six female attendants, and whom Katamasto notes Budomel was also sleeping with the attendants, and apparently 
without injury to his wives. Now, Baudemel seems to have accomplished this through no lack of labor, mind you, and at one point cornered and demanded of Cadamasto to know the truth, whether he or any other Christians had magic which could give him the means by which he could satisfy many women, and for which he offered a great reward. Now, Budumel's homes each contained a courtyard with a great tree in the center in the shade of which he held court, though he apparently only showed himself in public for one hour in the morning and a short while towards the evening, and during this time men of standing were admitted to speak with him. Catamasto and all other such men, no matter how considerable they might be, entertained the door of Budumel's courtyard and threw themselves down on their knees, bowed their heads to the ground, and with both hands scattered sand upon their naked shoulders and head. Catamasto says, A no man would I be bold enough to come to him before him at the parley, unless he had stripped himself naked save for the girdle of leather they wore, and after remaining in this posture for a good while, scattering the sand over himself, only then, and without arising, could Caramosto or other visitors draw nearer to Budumel. Once closer, they were allowed to relate their business, though they were also expected to continue scattering sand on themselves as they did so, a sign of a greater humility. Budumel has a tendency to barely take notice of such requests, and rarely refrain from continuing his previous conversations with the others near him. And whatever request was made, the king replied with a much haughtiness, generally replying only a few arrogant words. The great fear and the dread with which these people hold him was on account of his ability to seize and sell wives and children for even trivial misdeeds. And it is in this way he exacted obedience and a fear from his subjects. Now, in engaging in, in this, Cadamasto managed to prove himself sufficiently humble to Budumel that the king allowed the Venetian trader to enter the mosque in which he prayed. Now, after Cadamasto witnessed an evening prayer, Budumel asked him what the Italian thought of the ceremony. and Now, Cadamasto took his own Christian faith pretty seriously, and he wasn't too keen on answering as a result. But finally, the anxious Budumel was able to press him to do so. Cadamasto reported, I've told him that his faith was a false, and that those who constructed him into such things were ignorant of the truth. Budumel's response might be surprising to you. The Lord laughed at this saying that Catamasto's faith appeared to him to be good, since God had given the Christians such knowledge and skill to provide such gifts to Budomel. Yet he also seemed to pity Catamasto and the Christians too. In Budomel's eyes, God had given the Christians, with their navigation and shipping and cannons, to him, well, that was paradise on earth. Budomel and his people, in comparison, he argued, had nothing. God was going to give them paradise in the afterlife instead. Man, and to be a fly on that wall for that conversation, I think, must have really been something. Now, Katamasto left the mosque after meeting with Budumel, thinking the king had shown good powers of reasoning and deep understanding of men, while Budumel left much pleased, saying it was good to listen to the word of God. 
Now, Katamasto uh, takes time to discuss the agriculture as well of Budamel's kingdom. He, he talks, he says that European crops would not grow there, but that people did grow millet and kidney beans, and of special importance to Katamasto, palm wine. Unfortunately, he also reported, it lost its sweetness after just a few days, but otherwise it was a very good drink, and as intoxicating as wine, and as such he drank it many times during his sojourn, preferring it to European wine. While few grains grew in the Senegal, Catamasto also said that fruits of various kinds did grow, which were various, which were rather delicious. You know, Catamasto was impressed with the variety of new and exotic plants which he had never encountered, but he was flat out floored by the wildlife. He got great joy out of seeing elephants and giraffes and other animals of the most savage kinds, as well as exotic parrots and other birds. He spent quite a bit of time describing the various great serpents of Africa, some of which were large enough to swallow a goat, tales which were likely uh, included to astonish his readers back in Europe. Um, now, he was further astonished by the tradition of snake charming and claimed, oh, The Negroes are the great charmers of all the things, especially of these serpents. Uh, they must be very great magicians. Now, he didn't spend all his time just being an amateur wildlife biologist, however. He was also spending quite a bit of time, as you might imagine, at the local market. The Venetian tells us, this was hailed in a field on a Mondays and a Fridays, and I went two or three times to it. Men and the women came to it from the neighborhood country, within a distance of a four or a five miles. And those who dwelt farther off attended other markets. In the market that I attended, the people I think were very poor. Now, unquote. Catamasto didn't really base this on the quality of their wares, but rather the quantity. Um, cotton was sold, for example, but not in large quantities, uh, as well as vegetables, oil and millet, wooden bowls, palm leaf mats, all the other articles used in, in daily life in the region. Men and women came to sell. Some of the men offered, offered a little gold, others their weapons. Um, uh, and like the, or the cotton, but but none in any great quantity. Then none that impressed Catamasto, and sh I should say, they sold everything item by item. He said by barter and not for money, for they have none. Um, besides the gold, I guess. Besides uh, what he's talking about, um, uh, that there were no coins. Um, now, at any rate, Catamasto was disappointed by the overall lack of gold in Budomel's kingdom, and he found the market. Uh, and, and at the market there. And he, perhaps he was hoping and expecting something else due to a lack of understanding of how gold, the gold trade operated, uh, that it would just be very plentiful. Um, mind you, if gold was plentiful, it wouldn't have been so valuable. So uh, anyway, Katamasto gives uh, another reason for his visiting the market, which was to see strange sights. And in this, he wasn't the only one. He was, it appears, the first European encountered by most of the people at this market, for he states that they, a man and a woman, crowded to see me as though I were a marvel. It seemed to be a new experience to them, to see Christians, whom they had not previously seen. They marveled no less at my clothing than at my white skin. 
My clothes were after the Spanish fashion. A doublet of black damask with a short cloak of a grey wool. They examined the woolen cloth, for it was new to them, and the doublet with a much amazement. Some touch on my hands and on my limbs, and they rub me with the spittle to discover whether my whiteness was a dye or was of the flesh. And when they found it was of the flesh, they were astounded. Now, likewise, the Africans marveled greatly at some of the possessions of the Europeans, particularly the crossbows, and above all, the mortars. Catamasto gave a demonstration, firing some who came onto his ship, the noise of which, he tells us, frightened them exceedingly. Now, Catamasto really must have felt like he had a really big swinging dick right then, I think, because I told them that a murderer would slay more than a hundred men at a one shot, at which they were astonished, saying it was an invention of the devils. The ship also itself left the African visitors struck with admiration, the mass, sails, rigging, and anchors. Catamasto Oh, excuse me, <clears throat> Catamaster reported that the uh, Africans thought that the Portuguese must be great wizards, almost equal to the devil. And this appears to them, Catamaster said, because they did not understand the art of navigation. Neither had they seen the musical pipes which the Portuguese sailors carried and played, and they were also not familiar with candles, a process which Catamaster showed them, again astonishing the African visitors. Um, and this process is what historians call disenclavement, and that's what happens um, when societies who previously existed on the periphery of these uh, uh, um, of the of the uh, of the global markets just suddenly get connected into them into these gigantic trade routes that were already connecting most of Eurasia and North Africa, and were suddenly connected um, by these by these European ships. And what's Equally interesting to me is that this process is going both ways. I mean, Katamosto, like we said earlier, is equally convinced that the Africans are great sorcerers as well, charming their snakes and whatnot. Now, Katamosto had dispatched his business at that point, and uh, or shortly afterwards, and he and having acquired a certain number of slaves, he said, he decided to continue beyond Cape Verde, where he decided to discover a new lands and to make good on a venture. And he had also learned of another place where he might trade, a place called Gambia, not far beyond this first kingdom of Senegal, where uh, the Negroes who had been carried off to Spain, or rather to Portugal, um, said that there was gold in large quantities. And the Christians who went there would become very rich. Now, Caramasto, moved by the desire to find this gold and to see further novelties, finished his business with Budamel and returned to the caravel, and at once set off to leave the coast. But then he saw two vessels, which, having sighted each other, drew near. They knew they had to be Christians. One of the ships belonged to a Genoan, Antonio Usa de Mare, the other to certain squires of the Infante, tells, says Catamasto, and they, too, were sailing on a discovery of on a voyage of trade and discovery, seeking to go beyond Cape Verde. And so, Catamasto joined them, and together they set the course, maintaining a southerly direction always within sight of land. Now, they sighted the Cape the next day, uh, and aided by favorable winds, um, um, they traveled, Catamasto tells us, uh, about 40 miles uh, in one day from their place of having met. 
Now, Catamosto thought that the Verde Islands were very beautiful. He saw many dwellings of peasants close to the sea who belonged to what he said the, says the kingdom of Senegal. Now, Catamosto sometimes is a little bit vague. He says the kingdom of Senegal a lot. Um, but I think it's safe to say that what he means is that the people who lived there were Jolofs, probably. And at any rate, Catamosto needed water. And they couldn't find any. So they, they didn't stay very long, but they did catch a great number of fish um, uh, in that time and continued to sail. And beyond Cape Verde, they reached an inland gulf called Gori Bay, a beautiful place, Catamosto says, filled with rivers and streams. In fact, he had never seen a more beautiful coast, he reports. Now, the people living here were of two uh, different ethnic groups, the Barbacenes and the Serer peoples. Neither of these people were subject to the king of Senegal, Catamastotes. Uh, and because of frequent wars uh, with the, that king, they could be quite dangerous to encounter due to the distrust of outsiders as a result of having been roughly handled in the past. Now, Catamasto doesn't really have much good to say about them. And I don't think he attempted to make direct contact, saying that their country was closely wooded, full of lakes and streams, from which they derived great security, because it is impossible to penetrate the narrow tracks. Um, so instead, Catamasto and the other two caravels continued on, sailing farther south. They found another small river and beautiful country and decided to cast anchor. Now, this is the estuary of the Solom and Jumbus rivers. And after casting anchor, Catamasto and the other two captains drew lots to see who would send ashore his interpreter. For all three had interpreters aboard from Portugal, who had originally been sold by the lords of the Senegal to the first Portuguese to discover uh, the land. Uh, now, that duty fell to Antonio Usidemare who sent ashore his Christianized African slave ashore with instructions to ascertain the condition of the country to whom it was subject and whether gold and other objects of use were to be obtained there. Now, when he had landed and the boat had withdrawn a short distance, he suddenly encountered a great number of Negroes who observed the ships, approached, and had lain in wait with bows and arrows and other weapons to accost any who might land. They conversed for a short while, and Catamosto didn't know what was said between the two parties, but after that, the Africans began furiously to strike at uh, the interpreter with their short Moorish swords and quickly put him to death, those in the boat being unable to succor him. Catamosto learned la uh, learning this later, I was a stupefied. Realizing they must be a very cruel men to do such a thing, and then they might reasonably be expected to treat me a much worse. Now, on this account, Caramasto and the others set sail, headed further south, uh, and within sight of the shore the whole time until they finally reached their ultimate destination, the estuaries of the river Gambia. Now, once arriving, Catamasto and the others sent the smallest of the three caravels ahead, well manned by men from all three vessels, and with orders that as the caravel was small and drew little water, they were to advance as far as possible to discover if sufficient depth of water existed for the other two caravels. Now, after some time, the caravel returned to the mouth of the river, and it was then decided to send it farther upstream along with the boat from Catamosto's ship, armed and company to join them, the instructions would, if they were to be attacked, 
they would return at once to the ship without attempting to fight back if they were assailed anyway. Now, Catamasta was adamant that he was there to trade in the country peacefully and with the approval of the Africans, a feat accomplished much more easily with tact than with force, obviously. Now, Catamasto and his crew continued in this fashion to make their way about two miles up the river. Now, at that point, the Fidalgos spotted three canoes following them, and the Portuguese grabbed their oars, fearful of any attack since the bowmen there used poison arrows, and returned to the boats of the ships. Now, but despite the rapid obedience, Catamasto tells us, that which the Portuguese did this, they did not return so rapidly, but that the canoes were close behind within a bowshot of them, for they are very swift. But the Africans did not attack. Instead, they slowed and approached no nearer as the Portuguese arrived at their ships, and this was a tense stalemate. Catamasto tells us that these might have been canoes, but these are not the sort of small vessels that uh, he'd, used, he'd seen earlier for fishing that we've described. Each of these three vessels had 25 or 30 men, and they remained for a while gazing upon a thing neither they nor their fathers had ever seen before. That is, the ships and the white men. But they should no wish to parley, despite all that was said to them, and that they passed without a further incident. Now, you might think that Catamasto and the others would have taken this as a warning to, I don't know, not continue sailing back up the river the very next day, because that's some kind of freaky shit, which was essentially the Gambia Marine Corps staring you down. But if you think that, then you're not really a very good conquistador. I mean, mas aya, my friends. More over there. Caramasto and his friends, um, they just sailed about four miles the very next day right up the river. And suddenly they perceived several canoes coming up as fast as they were able. Um, now the Portuguese turned upon them and being dubious of their poison arrows stood to arms at their stations. Caramasto bared downstreams. Being in the lead ship, they split the canoes into two sections, thrusting his caravel into the midst of them. He counted seventeen of the size of considerable boats. Their crews lay gazing upon a marvel at the ship. Caramasto estimated there might be as a hundred and fifty, all clothed in white cotton shirts, some with small white caps, he tells us, like the German style except that on each side they had a white wing with a feather in the middle of the cap as though to distinguish the fighting men. At the prow of each canoe with a round shield stood one negro with a shield of leather on his arm. They made no movement towards Catamasto or his men or the Portuguese to the Africans. Then, as they perceived the other two vessels coming behind, they advanced towards these ships. Upon reaching them, without any other salute, they all threw down their oars and began to shoot off their arrows. Caramasto and the Europeans also had a surprise, and seeing the attack, at once discharged four bombards. Hearing these, amazed and confounded by the roar, they threw down their bows, some gazing here, some there, and stood in astonishment at the sight of the shots falling into the river about them. 
Unfortunately for Catamasto, his mortars did not kill anywhere near the 100 men per shot as he had claimed earlier on the Senegal River, and after watching thus for a considerable while, the Africans overcame their fear and began afresh to shoot with much ardor, approaching to which a, within a stone's throw of the ships. The sailors began to discharge their crossbows at them, the first bolt of which hit one man in the chest, and immediately he fell dead. His companions examined this bolt closely after pulling it from him, and, but they did not restrain themselves from continuing the attack on the ships. Catamasto states that many of them were wounded, but by the grace of God, excuse me, many of the Africans were wounded, but by the grace of God, not one of the Christians was hit. And then so the Africans changed tactics. They began concentrating their fire on the small caravel. Catamasto tells us a fight was waged while he made his way towards the smaller ship. And it wasn't until all three ships were able to be lashed together by chains amidst a discharge of bombards and crossbows uh, that, enabled, that enabled them to, to escape. And, uh, and the Africans drew off the attack. Now, with all that said, this is probably not the most tactful way to start a trading relation, to be honest. And I swear to God, he might realize he's being funny here. But after describing all of this, Catamasto's immediate next words are the following. We then attempted to parley with the Negroes. Now, he's not joking either. He was very interested in trading. After much gesticulating and shouting by our interpreters, one of the canoes returned within a bow shot. And me and the interpreters, we did our best to persuade the Africans that we have come in a peace. We were traders of a merchandise and had a peaceful and a friendly relations with the Negroes of the kingdom of the Senegal. And we wish it to be on a similar terms with you. The men of Gambia replied, though, that they had news of their coming and of their trade with the Negroes of Senegal. They said the Christians were bad men who ate human flesh and that they, they bought Negroes to eat them. They did not want friendship on any terms, but would slaughter the Christians and intended to take their fancy crossbows and bombards to their lord as a gift. This was the country of Gambia. Catamasto states that at that moment the wind freshened, and, realizing the ill will they bore, quickly sailed away, ending the engagement. Now, they debated a bit to proceed up the river again, um, for, if necessary, upwards of 100 miles in hopes of finding better disposed people, but the sailors weren't having any of that. They made plain their desire to return home immediately and not be poisoned to death. And shortly after, they, quote, began to murmur that they would not consent to such a voyage. Catamasto realized that to continue was to risk mutiny. And so, on account of his, quote, pig-headed and obstinate, unquote, sailors, probably good they didn't hear him call him that, they made their way back to Portugal. Now, Catamasto had forged a working relationship, maybe even a friendship, with the other Italian navigator, and so they set out again the next year, uh, uh, Uso de Mare, that is, as well as a third caravel equipped by Henrique, and they sailed back to Gambia. Now, Catamasto was still under the impression that he would make a fortune in trading for gold on that river, but since uh, 
The people of the coast were so rude and savage, we were unable to have a speech with them, or on our land, or treat about anything, and I was forced to return to Portugal without advancing further. Um, he was still uh, not without great information about the area. And unfortunately, as he neared the Gambia River for the second time, a storm arose, and the three caravels were forced to sail near the wind as possible for two nights and three days. And on that third day, they were so lost out to sea, um, they didn't really uh, know where they were. Now, with that said, when they found land, uh, they had found more islands previously undiscovered uh, by Europeans at any rate, and uninhabited. These were the Cape Verde Islands. Now, Catamosto and the others searched them. They climbed a mountainous part to oversee the rest, ascertaining that the land was uninhabited, and then they continued exploring, finding four islands in total before leaving and setting their coast back for Cape Verde, which they did, and this time arrived and passed and continued onward for the second time to the River of Gambia. Now, Catamosto entered the river at once, and he sailed up the river by day without coming into further contact with any Africans except for a few canoes, kept along, which were kept along the river banks, uh, not daring to accost the ships, Akatamasto said. And he had only gotten ten miles up the river, though, when one of the sailors died of fever. And that's an ominous warning to those of us who understand disease, but was far less ominous to people in the 15th century. Katamasto thus continued upstream, at this point followed at a distance by some canoes. Now the interpreters of the Portuguese called out to them, displaying silken wares and other articles. And uh, little by little the canoes drew nearer, gaining confidence in us, until at last they drew alongside the caravel. And one of them could understand the interpreter and boarded the ship. He marveled at greatly at her, and at the method of navigating by means of sails, for they knew no method except for by a rowing, and did not think it was possible any other method. He was also overcome with the astonishment at the sight of the white man, and marveled no less at the clothing. Now, Caramasto gave him uh, a, many gifts, which pleased him exceedingly, and that is how he learned that the land was called Gambia, and that the principal lord of the land was named Ferrosangoli, who dwelt nine or ten days' uh, journey from the river. He was a subject of the emperor of Mali. But nevertheless, um, Katamasto uh, learned that there were still many lesser lords who dwelt nearer to the river, some on one bank, some on another, and the man offered to bring Katamasto to one of them named Batamansa. Now, to Katamasto, this obviously seemed quite acceptable, and so they sailed up the river until they reached the home of Batamansa, which, according to Katamasto's estimate, was about 60 miles from the mouth of the river. Now, once they arrived, Katamasto sent an interpreter into the presence of Batamansa with a present of Moor's silk in the form of a surcoat quite fine, and made in the land of the Moors, and with instructions that they had come by command of the king of Christian Portugal to establish friendship with him, and to inform him that if he had need of the products of our country, that our king would send to him each year, and many other messages. An alliance was secured, Catamasto tells us, and after that meeting, they had not only secured his friendship, but we have bartered many articles, for which we received in exchange negro slaves and a certain quantity of gold. 
but not as much on account of the respect of what I had anticipated. Well, you can't win them all, as my grandfather used to say. Now, Katamasto remained there for about 15 days. And in this time, many Africans came to the ships, some to gaze upon a sight so strange to them, others to sell some trifle of theirs or little rings of gold. The articles they brought were cotton cloth and thread, cotton clothes, uh, cotton clothes woven in their fashion, some or cloths, excuse me, not clothes, woven in their fashion, some white, some variegated, white and blue striped, or red, blue, and white, all excellently made. They also brought many apes and baboons of various species, large and small, of which there are large numbers in these parts. They also brought for sale civet and the skins of cats from what civet is obtained. And in this way, Caramasto said, each a day, fresh a people of a various tongues, constantly journeying from a place to place, up and down of the rivers in the canoes. Now, so finally, Catamasto was able to barter on the Gambia, but at the end of those uh, 15 days, by now many of the men had begun to suffer from a high fever, sharp and continuous, and so he left suddenly. Now, he did try to make contact on the way out with another African chief named Casamansa, um, be, uh, mostly because they were forced to, because of rough seas, not depart the river. Um, and but Casamansa was apparently gone, having gone to go to war, and so Catamasta returned to Africa. Though, as Henrique had asked, he found time to capture one more captive from the place, an essential task from the Infante, to be completed, quote, by force or persuasion, unquote, since he had gone finally far enough south that the interpreters, which that had been brought with the expeditions, had trouble speaking to the people uh, on the south side of the Gambia River. Um, now, and and so ends Catamasto's voyages, and the and, and his accounts of Africa, and two, I guess the content, uh, most of the content of this episode. Now, shortly after his return, um, the dumb Henrique will die, and that, as much as anything, makes this, I think, a good stopping point. I think. Now. Portuguese Fidalgos will continue traversing Africa's shores, of course, and after our next episode, when we return to the Canaries, we will finally be able to conclude this opening series with the final episode, which would be the tenth, including the intro episodes I am proud to report, and which will detail the continued Portuguese advance down Africa's coastline, um, as well as the uh, war and early colonial wo- the early colonial wars and rivalry between Castile and Portugal, and not too distant into the future to soon be Spain and Portugal. Now, I started this episode though talking. <clears throat> stating, I guess, that, that it matters who writes history. Zarara is an invaluable source of information for historians um, to better help us understand the creation of the Atlantic world, but he is only invaluable to us because he works for the Lord Infant, uh, for the Infante Henrique, and because we know, and because we know that we know how to be skeptical when we examine his accounts of the early African voyages, because, I mean, we should always be skeptical. Uh, Don't get me wrong. But if we're skeptical about everything, all the time, then we really aren't going to be able to trust 
any of our sources, and and, and what's the point? That's you're not going to be able to make a history. No. So Catamosto, though, on the other hand, like I said, he's a very unusual as a source because he is less biased than Zerara or other writers, but he too has them. Um, his voyage seems a lot less heroic and makes a lot more sense when we know that his family is in desperate financial straits as a result of, of the shenanigans his father uh, was getting into. And and, um, and, and Katamasto doesn't tell us that. We, we know that from, from the work of other historians. Um, now, neither of these writers has almost anything to say about the common soldiers and sailors aboard the ships, except for the occasional mutterings we hear from them about how, them wanting to go home when illness or conflict created um, dangerous conditions. Uh, for the men who weren't necessarily going to be reaping in the profits that uh, Henrique and the Fidalgos were. And so we barely get a view of how these men aboard those ships, uh, who, who weren't noblemen or other men of standing, felt about how they felt about what was going on. Except that on occasion, they could make their displeasure known uh, through uh, such m mutterings um, that some Portuguese expeditions returned despite the captain's desire to continue slave hunting in Africa. Now, I think it's a little ironic that uh, Zerara has a lot more to say about the slaves taken than Catamosto does, um, who, who, who just merely relates his telling to them as a business transaction. Um, and he doesn't mention them really a, a, again. We don't know how many died on the way back or anything about them at all, um, except for the 12-year-old slave girl, Budamel, uh, gifted the Venetian. Um, and reading Catamasto, one gets the idea that, I, or I think I got the idea that he thought of himself as a good Christian and a good person. And maybe for that reason, he's either purposefully or maybe subconsciously distancing himself from the slaves which he purchases and, and is complicit and responsible for the ultimate fate of those slaves. In contrast, there are proudly reports plenty of details about the people whom, whom, whom were captured in his accounts. Uh, numbers of captives, their ages, sexes, all sorts of details. To Zerara and the Fidalgos of Portugal to Henrique, um, obtaining slaves through war or deceit was something to be proud of. Zerara never fails to mention slaves who were well-treated and becomes Christians in addition. And of course he wouldn't fail to mention he's trying to make Henrique a saint. And how can't you just see it? Saint Henrique, the patron saint of mobsters, bandits, and slave-takers. <laughs> At any rate, um, thinking of all this makes me realize, I, I guess, a little bit, I, I, I guess I'm inserting myself a little bit in, uh, by broadcasting this podcast into the historiography of the Atlantic world. And I, I think that's a good thing. Maybe it isn't. Because I love doing it. Uh, and I, I work hard to improve as both a historian as a storyteller. And I said once or twice before, but this project is purposefully a working man's history. You know, I quit being a park ranger to teach. And then I quit teaching to do this and... This doesn't exactly pay the bill, so I work as a delivery driver, and it works out great because it gives me the flexibility to research and to write. But I also, I, I, I kind of appreciate this for a different reason, too. A bittersweet reason, I suppose, and, and that's that it's kept me grounded. Maybe even a little angry 
at work sometimes. And, and I hope that comes out in the episodes uh, on occasion, not angry at you, but because the uncertainty and, and the alienation and, there's, and the struggle of, of, of you know, a, a minimum wage job in America is a way for us in a way to connect with people from the past who were most often not given voices, enslaved peoples, the working poor, the quote-unquote downtrodden. So because of that, um, you know, hopefully, you know, in 20 or 30 years from now, this will help me kind of semi-retire. I'll still be producing episodes, of course. But, um, you know, and I, and I find there are pros and cons to this approach. And it would be a lot easier for me to do this with the direction uh, from wiser and more experienced historians than I. Um, and, uh, who, I, you know, maybe one day I might go to grad school and try and, and, and seek that. But, but also, and, and, and beyond that, because I don't do that, though, the, the podcast is never going to be as polished or as well edited as it probably could be. If it was being, you know, if I was a more accomplished historian or writer, and, and I could do that uh, with with training, but in and of itself, I don't think that's a bad thing. Just a different thing. I mean, if nothing else, hopefully this will better encapsulate a point of view from the world as seen from the bottom than most traditional historians have done. From where I'm standing, I despise the conquistadors, and I'm. Sure, you know, that plenty of decent people existed in Spain and Portugal in the 15th century. It's just that none of them were going to Africa. And then certainly not looking for slaves. And it doesn't mean, though, that there's nothing worth admiring in them. Mas Aya, like I say, that's a Spanish uh, slang phrase used by the conquistadors. Literally, it meant more over there. And figuratively, though, it means something a little bit more than that. Matt kept, keep going. Never give up. Never surrender. You can do this. You can really see the spirit of never giving up in a lot of the Fidalgos discussed by Zerara. Nobody's perfect, and nobody's perfectly rotten, though. So I just think you should keep that in mind. Wherever you are, wherever you are journeying towards, I hope you never surrender. I hope you please keep fighting. Times can be rough. You might lose sometimes. You might even lose a lot. Sometimes you're going to have to work through pain and hardship. And it might even be difficult to relate that pain and hardship to other people who simply don't have those experiences. But if you keep working hard, it just might get better. I can't promise you that it will, but I can promise you this. There is always Mas Aya. And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny.
what's happening here You're no longer in control And we're drinking up your beer This is now a democratic Egalitarian pirate ship So enjoy your trip Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny This is a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship It's a mutiny Ship.